Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, October 21st, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. Legal scholars Jeffrey Stone and Amy Adler discuss Stone's book, Sex and the Constitution, Sex, Religion, and Law, From America's Origins to the 21st Century. So, um... I have to begin by saying I love this book. It's brilliant, which you would expect with Jeff, but it's also so full of surprises. And one of the things that, that surprised me, Jeff, is um, as one of the great constitutional law scholars of our time, I was curious why you decided to write this book, a book about sex. So it was um, purely curiosity-driven, um, <laughs> not in the way you're thinking. <laughs> I mean, the Supreme Court in the last uh, 60 years um, has increasingly gotten involved in issues relating to sex and sexuality, issues like obscenity and contraception and abortion and gay rights and so on. And um, about 10 years ago, uh, I began being curious about uh, what would the framers have thought about this? Is this completely off the wall from whatever they, from what they would ever have envisioned this Constitution to do. And um, I'm not an originalist. I was not interested in this because I, I thought what they expected should be absolutely controlling. But I was just curious. And usually when academics write a book, um, it's at the end of an intellectual journey. It's basically you've written papers, you've, you've done workshops, you've given lectures, uh, you've published articles on a subject, and the writing of the book is sort of the, the, the conclusion of this long journey. Um, in this case, um, I basically decided to learn about this because I was curious. And my expectation, which was, as it turns out, very naive, was that the basic attitude towards sex historically was what it had been in the United States in the 1950s, kind of very prudish. And I just assumed that's what life was until the sexual revolution. And I was stunned when I went back and started reading about the era in which the framers lived uh, to discover that I had been completely wrong um, and that they lived in a world that in many respects was much more like our contemporary world in terms of issues of sex and sexuality. Uh, There were no laws against obscenity. There was uh, endless erotica readily available. Uh, Abortion was legal and common. Um, and they had a very different attitude about sex than what we had in this country in the 1950s. And that stunned me, frankly, because I had had this notion that they were like the Puritans, and that's, you know, that's what the founding generation was like. Um, and that got me curious further in terms of, well, you know, how could I have been so wrong about this, and how did they get to this point? And that led me, again, just as a matter of personal curiosity, to delve further and further back in time uh, ultimately going to the Greeks and the Romans to try to figure out what their world was like and then how that and that, that, that society was one that was very free-willing in the realm of sex um, and then seeing how religion began to change that and, and how it evolved over the next uh, uh, two millennia, basically, um, and up to the framers. And then from the framers 
which in this Enlightenment period, um, to how we got to the 1950s. Um, and that, too, was a journey that I, was, I did not know much about, and I learned about it. And so the book was really something I decided to do um, as I became more informed and as my curiosity became greater about all this. Um, so it was not that I really set off to write a book, anything like this one. It was really just a matter of going back and learning and being curious and discovering all sorts of things I hadn't realized and deciding, gee, I should tell people this. Um, and so that's really how the book emerged. Yeah. I have to say, as a reader, some of these revelations that you convey, particularly, I think, about the, about the founding and the colonies, I thought everything was just Hester Prynne. You know, I thought it was going to be. And instead, it's just this incredibly tolerant moment compared to what I was taught, I think, uh, growing up. Yeah, well, I, I do think that that the way in which the the origins of our the founding of our nation tend to be taught and understood is sort of the Hester Prynne. It's sort of the Puritans, right? The Puritans were the framers, and one of the things I learned, which again any any American historian who studies that era would have known, but I didn't know it, um, was that you know the Puritans did have this society that was uh, very much like what would imagine the fiercest members of the moral majority today would create for themselves. Um, But they were a relatively isolated community, and they basically were eclipsed within 60 years. And uh, with the immigration of large numbers of people who did not share the Puritan values, um, that city on a hill, which the Puritans attempted to create, uh, basically disappeared a century before uh, our nation was, was created. Um, and there were very few remnants of that, even, by the time we get to the, to the 1760s and 70s and 80s. Um, and that um, the Enlightenment was the primary driving force behind the society and the cultural values of the framers. Um, and as I said, there were no laws against obscenity, and um, uh, extremely explicit sexual material was routinely available, um, and, and prostitution was a commonplace, and um, sexual attitudes about fornication and adultery were very loose and very open. Um, although uh, homosexuality was a crime, it was never the laws against homosexuality were never enforced in that era, except with respect to minors or, uh, or unconsenting uh, sex. Uh, and basically, it was a very tolerant period, and that was the way the framers understood um, their own society and their own concept of what, what individual freedom was. So an- another big surprise to me in the book was how deeply skeptical of religion the framers were. And I think, you know, you tell the story of how we, we talk sometimes about our history as a Christian nation and how completely wrong that is. Yeah, I mean, there is this myth that's been created um, the beginning of the in the first half of the 19th century, and then uh, repeated over time, that w- this is a Christian nation in the sense that it was founded as such. And again, that 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 vision confuses intentionally, I would say, the Puritans with the Framers. Um, the Puritans did believe in creating a Christian society in which all the laws basically cited. Uh, uh, parts of the Bible as authority for those laws. But um, by the time we get to the founding, um, men like uh, Franklin and Jefferson and even Adams and Washington um, were basically um, either non-Christians. They were very sharply critical of many Christian doctrines. Uh, They tended not to believe in a God that had any particular interest in individual human experience. Um, They believed in a creator in a very abstract uh, creator who produced natural law, 
Um, and for the most part, they uh, either, uh, like Jefferson uh, and Franklin, overtly mocked many of the doctrines of traditional Christianity, um, or in other cases, basically just didn't buy them. They did think religion as in an abstract form could be useful in a, in a, in a democratic society because they understood that human nature um, could lead people to do bad things and to be selfish and to be oppressive. And they did think that some sense of, of, of overarching moral religious values was useful. But as several of them put it at the time, uh, the core principle that they believed in was do unto others. Um, and that that was really their core understanding of the role religion should play in American society. And that's why they were so fiercely determined to create a separation of church and state. Um, they didn't mean and didn't want to oppress the freedom of individuals who held religious beliefs. That's why they had a free exercise clause in the Constitution. But they were fiercely determined to create a society in which religion did not dictate the secular law. Um, and that's why they had the Establishment Clause, which was designed to, pro- to prohibit uh, government from being um, framed by religious doctrine. So, you know, the, the book tells this long story, of, an amazing story of the history of, of attitudes towards sex. And it's not just America. It's really Western culture. But I want to just um, <clears throat> not lose track of the law story and invite you to, to tell us a little bit, to walk us through the major issues that you address in terms of the legal regulation of sex. And there are four categories that that Jeff writes about the the recent developments in, obscenity, uh, contraception, abortion, and gay rights. Can you tell us um, a bit about about what you found in these areas, what drove regulation in these areas, the role of religion, which we've been talking about? So very briefly, because that's much of the book, Um, uh, with respect to obscenity there were no laws against obscenity in western culture Um, even in the middle ages there were no laws against obscenity um, until the early 19th century um, when the second great awakening um, burst upon the scene a a kind of evangelical movement in the United States uh, a little bit like the moral majority of today um, which attempted to impose religious values into the secular law. Um, Sunday closing laws was an issue that they attempted unsuccessfully at that point to impose. Uh, banning Sunday mail delivery was something that was highly contentious at the time and which was re- rejected, by the way. Um, that is, they, they, the government insisted on continuing Sunday mail delivery uh, despite the objections of the, of the moralists. Um, but they made some progress on issues like obscenity. A couple of states adopted obscenity laws, but they were very few and far between. Um, and if you look at the United States in the 1840s and 1850s, again, um, explicit sexual material was pretty much everywhere. Um, and they didn't have movies, of course, they didn't have videos, but the, the, the texts and the images that were available were pretty surprising uh, to people like me, anyway. Um, and, they were, and they were pretty open and commonplace, and they were sold in bookstores and on, 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 street, um, on streets, at, at you know, newsstands and so on. Um, and uh, it was really after the Civil War um, when Anthony Comstock entered the scene, um, when... Uh, and again, during the social purity movement of the latter 19th century, uh, that laws began to be enacted that prohibited the sale, distribution, um, exhibition of obscene materials. And that during that period, there was a complete transformation of American law 
on this issue. And by the end of the 19th century, driven largely by the successful efforts of Anthony Comstock, the federal government and every state had adopted laws prohibiting something called obscenity. And what they defined as obscenity was any material uh, that included any part, even a single word, um, that would be that would that would impair the moral judgment of the most vulnerable members of society. Um, so what that meant, and it meant it in practice in the real world, is that basically any p- image that showed nudity of any kind was illegal. Any uh, publication that talked about sex, even in indirect ways, was illegal. Uh, one of my favorite incidents in the book about that demonstrates how far this went was uh, a newspaper published a letter to the editor um, in, in which an individual told the following story that um, a woman had had um, had a miscarriage uh, and the, as a consequence the doctor told her she should not have sex for a year because it would be highly risky for her health. Her husband nonetheless raped her and she died. And the question was whether he should be prosecuted. And the law said, no, you know, husbands can rape their wives, that's okay. And in the letter to the editor told the story, and it said, um, if, if a husband could be prosecuted for murdering his wife with a knife, why not with a penis? And the, the newspaper was prosecuted and convicted for publishing the word penis. Um, and that's how far the law of obscenity went in this era. Um, Similarly, in this era, the, the, the law with respect to contraception and abortion were completely transformed. Um, prior to the late 19th century, uh, contraception and information about contra- contraception were routinely available. Um, but part of what Comstock did is basically to treat within the, the, the larger concept of obscenity um, any information about contraception. So if you wrote a book or an article... Uh, that talked about how to engage in contraception, that was legal, that was deemed obscene. Um, And any device that was available or sold for the purpose of contraception was deemed unlawful. Um, And so by the end of the 19th century, contraception was completely prohibited. Information about it was illegal, devices were illegal, pills were illegal, and so on. Um, And this, again, was the first time this had ever happened in history. Up until now, contraception had always been legal. Um, and much the same happened with abortion. Abortion, as I said, was, was legal during the, the framing of the Constitution, um, at least up to what was called quickening, which was the midpoint of pregnancy, roughly four and a half months, um, at the time at which women would f- first have feel the stirrings of the fetus. Uh, some states prohibited abortion, but those laws were actually never enforced. Uh, but abortion was, in fact, common and legal. In the 1840s, for example, um, uh, a woman named Madame Restell in New York was a, a famous and, and widely uh, unknown abortionist who advertised in the newspapers of the day, and you could basically read in newspapers advertisements for contraception, for abortion, and so on. And, um, and it was a very commonplace. And over the course of the 19th century, abortion became ever more common um, because in the, in the 18th century, in, in the agrarian world of that time, um, families wanted large numbers of children because it was an agrarian society and having many children was economically valuable. But by the end of the 19th century, with the industrialization and urbanization of society, uh, large numbers of children became uh, challenging 
to the ability of families to, to prosper. And so the demand for contraception and abortion became ever more um, evident. And the number of abortions, for example, that were performed went up uh, dramatically. Um, and it was in this era that the laws against abortion were enacted. And much of this was about a, a notion about women. Um, much of it was about this, this, this understanding of women being um, Eve-like. That is, they were evil temptresses. And if they could not be controlled, they would undermine their men. They would betray their men, their husbands, their boyfriends, whatever, um, and, and that women had to be constrained. And one of the ways of constraining them was to not enable them to have sex without the consequences of pregnancy. And so one of the arguments that was made for prohibiting contraception and prohibiting abortion was this was necessary to constrain the evil uh, desires of women, which undermined the rights uh, of men. But in any event, by the end of the 19th century, uh, all obscenity, all contraception, all abortion was illegal um, and a complete transformation from the world of the framers. And obviously, from that point to the present, there's been a constant struggle to kind of reestablish the world of the framers um, as against this religious-driven motivation to control the secular law and particularly to control the rights of women. You know, the story about... about controlling women is upsetting and and very compelling. One thing that I am more puzzled by is why why did Comstock have so much success? Why did this campaign against obscenity work? And he emerges in the book as a really fascinating figure. Was he insane? Were people insane to to follow Comstock? What was going on? Well, um, so so Comstock um, grew up in Connecticut in a very religious family. Um, during the Civil War, he joined the Union Army in 1864. Um, he wound up being uh, assigned to a platoon, and, and his expectation was that this would be a very moral group of people like himself. And it turned out that he got there, and all these guys were reading pornography. And he was horrified at this. He couldn't, he'd never seen this before, and he was just completely shocked uh, at, 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 at this experience. And after the war, he moved to New York, and he was working, I think, as a, I forget now, I think as a grocer. Um, and he had a friend um, who died of a disease, presumably a venereal disease. And Comstock concluded that he um, uh, was the victim of his own exposure to pornography and decided to devote his life to suppressing the availability of this material, which he thought to be utterly immoral and dangerous. Um, and at the same time, the YMCA... Uh, actually before the Civil War, the YMCA began campaigning for laws against obscenity um, and had modest success in, in early stages of doing that, including in New York. Um, and they latched onto Comstock. They saw this guy who was running around basically trying to provide evidence for prosecutions in New York under the New York obscenity law. And they said, this, this guy is, is completely devoted to this. He's effective. He's committed. And they made him basically uh, in charge of the Committee for the Suppression of Vice. And Comstock then went to Washington and lobbied very effectively um, during this period of the social purity uh, era in the United States, uh, sort of the Victorian era, um, and got the federal government to enact laws against obscenity. And ultimately, he went around and and championed this. I mean, if you kind of think of Jerry Falwell multiplied by 10, um, this was kind of what Comstock was like. Um, And he was, in fact, extraordinarily successful and effective. And there were people who regarded him as insane, 
who thought his views were driven by a kind of crazy obsession about sexuality. Um, but the fact is, he was extraordinarily effective. And as a result of his efforts, um, all every state in the nation adopted these laws against obscenity, prosecuted them aggressively, and defined obscenity in this extraordinarily broad way. There were people who fought back. There was a free speech league in the late 19th century um, who fought back against these laws. There were individual doctors who fought back against them, saying it's important for people to be educated about contraception and, and people should know about this, and, and yet they were prosecuted for publications that they, that they produced. Um, and, um, and, and Comstock was basically the figure who, who led this. One of my favorite uh, um, parodies of, of, of Comstock was the Masses magazine, which was published here in New York, um, a, a left-wing uh, magazine, um, about which, by the way, Amy is, is extremely knowledgeable. Um, I published a cartoon uh, in which they saw um, a judge sitting at a bench, and Anthony Comstock, he's got a woman, he's dragging her in by the hair, and she is naked, and it says, Your Honor, this woman gave birth to a child when she was naked. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it kind of captured the, 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 the power and the centrality of Comstock. Um, so, yeah, he is a, 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 an important figure in American history, and he's an important figure in, in the book. There's another great story you tell about Comstock where uh, he went in to to arrest people for a sex show, but he waited till it was over. Right. He watched the whole thing. <laughs> right. right, and he was mocked by his opponent, saying, you know, he gets off on this stuff. Don't just like yeah. ourselves. Right? I wonder, <clears throat> with censorship of obscenity, I, I often wonder about the motivations of censors. It seems like some, often there's a weird psychosexual pleasure maybe going on, not, mm-hmm. just, not just the religious story, which you also tell so well. Right. I want to go back to the abortion issue because I think yeah. you know, for, for contemporary reasons it's especially important to understand. Mm-hmm. So abortion was legal at the time that the Constitution was adopted and had been legal throughout history. Even in the Middle Ages, the church regarded abortion as a sin, but they did not make it a crime. Um, so if you did not share the faith and you believed it was okay to have an abortion, it was legal to have it. Um, the, the movement to criminalize abortion began in the United States basically in the late 19th century. And it was driven by a combination of religious fanaticism and, uh, and, and the medical profession. Uh, members of the medical profession, who, who tended to be people who shared the religious fanaticism, uh, basically argued that um, abortion was the, the murder of an unborn child. Um, but they, they basically did this in ways that often seemed kind of crazy. So one of them, for example, advocated the, the view that the fetus from the moment of conception um, can think, can feel, and can reason. Um, and they propagated the view that, that women who had uh, abortions uh, frequently committed suicide afterwards um, uh, or, or were frequently driven to insanity because of their sense of guilt over the matter. Um, and others argued that women who had abortion, any subsequent children they had were frequently um, seriously ill and, and, and deformed as a consequence of the, of the woman's um, uh, immorality. And so these, these arguments were dressed up as medical arguments that combined with religious arguments. Um, but, but what happened in the world during this period, it's really important to understand, is that by the time we got to the mid-19th century, there were a third of all pregnancies ended in abortion. Um, contraception was not very effective, even though it was legal at that time, but it was not very effective. Uh, families did not want to have nine children, which was the average in the 18th century, um, and the only practical way to deal with this was by having abortion. And 
um, it was done on a regular basis by basically professionals who knew what they were doing, midwives who were very experienced at this. It was reasonably safe, um, and it was not particularly shameful, uh, and it was openly advertised and openly available. Um, and by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, um, abortion was illegal in every state in the nation and was regarded as a serious crime and had become seen in society as shameful. And as a consequence, um, women still were getting pregnant and did not want to have children, and they continued to have abortions. But instead of being able to go openly to midwives who were trained and were safe, they now had to enter this new, new world of the illegal abortion. And what that meant was that they either had to self-abort, um, doing it often in an extremely uh, untrained and amateurish way, using either poisons uh, or knitting needles or crochet hooks, um, frequently doing serious damage to themselves because they were doing something they didn't know how to do and doing it in dangerous ways. Um, or they had to find what came to be known as the back alley abortionist. Um, and as we move into the 20th century, um, the way this typically would happen was if a woman became pregnant and did not want to carry the, the, the pregnancy to term, um, she first of all had to find an abortionist. And you couldn't look at advertisements in the paper. You couldn't go to the yellow pages, right? This was all illegal. So you'd have to find somebody. Now, some women were lucky enough to know another woman who had had an abortion, and they might be able to give them advice. But frequently, they'd have to go to, to, to elevator operators or, or, or bartenders or prostitutes <coughs> and say, you know, can you tell me? How do, where do I go? And they would get a name, and they would contact someone who they didn't know. And this person would tell them, okay, meet me on the corner of such and such a street um, at 11 o'clock at night and face west. And they would go there, and someone would come up from behind them and blindfold them and push them in the back seat of a car and drive them to an undisclosed location um, where some people, they didn't know who they were. They didn't know whether they were trained or untrained. They could never see them, um, would perform an illegal abortion on them, and then assuming things went reasonably well, would drive them back and drop them off um, at 2 in the morning at this, at this street corner. Um, and there are, by the mid-20th uh, mid century, there were 200 deaths a year of women having illegal abortions and several thousand women having serious physical uh, injuries as a result of this. And the stories of these things were secret. Um, one of the realities by the middle of the, 19th, the, middle of the 20th century is that um, abortion was illegal, and it was now shameful. And so women who did have abortions um, basically kept it secret. They, might, they may have told a, an intimate friend or an intimate family member, but that was it. And so it was a world that did not have any reality in the way people understood what was happening. They didn't know how often it was happening. They didn't know what was happening to these women. Um, it was largely invisible. Um, and the only times these stories got out in the open were when women died. Um, and there were horrible stories like this. Um, one of them that I tell in the book is about a college student who has an abortion, goes back to her dorm room afterwards. Things did not go well. Um, she locks herself in a dorm room, and she bleeds to death in her, in her dorm. Um, and this was not uncommon in these days. But, um, but the reality of abortion was largely secret. And it wasn't until the women's movement in the 1960s that women began encouraging other women who had had abortions to talk about that and to tell their stories and to talk about how horrible this had been. Um, and even though contraception had become much more available by the mid-20th century, 
the laws that had been prohibiting abort, uh, contraception in the 19th century began to be repealed in the 20th century, um, and contraception became more effective than it had been in the 19th century. It was still the case that by the mid-20th century, a million women a year were having abortions, illegal abortions like the ones I've described. So, so let's talk about Roe v. Wade. And you were a law clerk to Justice Brennan during, during that decision. How did it happen? What, what was it like? Um, why did the court do what it did? So um, in the 1960s, the women's movement began to, for the first time to talk about abortion openly and to talk about um, women should have and must have the right to decide for themselves um, whether to carry a child to term and whether to bear a beget a child. And um, for the first time, states began reconsidering their laws on abortion. And four states in around 1970 um, adopted laws that uh, allowed abortion, at least in the first trimester, uh, going back to more or less what the law had been at the time of the Constitution being adop- uh, adopted. Um, and one of those states was New York. Uh, but once states started doing that, um, the religious community began pushing back fiercely against such legislation and began organizing and condemning any member of the legislature um, who would support such laws. And um, they became single-issue voters. And they were very powerful. Single-issue voters have an enormous impact on on elected officials. And basically, the movement to reform these laws stopped dead. Um, And one of the most dramatic moments uh, occurred in New York because a year after the state legislature enacted a new abortion law that allowed abortion in the first trimester, um, the legislature, given the pushback from the Catholic Church and from uh, others, um, repealed the repeal law and reenacted the old 19th century law prohibiting abortion completely. Um, in New York. And uh, Nelson Rockefeller vetoed the second law, basically saying uh, the, the clear majority of citizens of our state believe that abortion should be a matter between a doctor and, and a woman and her doctor. Um, clearly, the only reason for this uh, repeal of the new law was because of the impact of religion, uh, and religion should not dictate. Uh, the secular law in a society that is committed to the separation of church and state, and the rights of women should not be determined by religious beliefs, and he therefore vetoed the the second law um, and therefore reinstated the law that continued to allow abortion in New York. Um, But the reality was that across the country, the movement to legalize um, abortion by legislation simply ran into a brick wall. Um, And for the first time, um, people began thinking about the possibility of challenging the constitutionality of laws against abortion. Now, it's important to understand that by the time we get to 1973, the time Roe v. Wade is decided, uh, a substantial majority of Americans uh, believe that abortion should be a matter between a woman and her physician and, and should be legal in at least the first trimester or beyond. Um, 60% of Americans generally took this position in Gallup polls at the time. Um, and it's also interesting to note, by the way, that Republicans were more pro-abortion than Democrats because Catholics were Democrats at that time. And Catholics tended to be more anti-abortion than any other segment of the society. So polls would show that 65% of Republicans and 55% of Democrats supported uh, a right of abortion, which is sort of counterintuitive to the world as we now understand it. Um, 
And at the time of Roe v. Wade, um, several lower courts, several, several women's groups began challenging the constitutionality of laws prohibiting abortion in federal courts. And several federal courts, um, indeed all the federal courts that addressed the question in the years before Roe, held that the state laws violated the Constitution. And the argument basically was that the Supreme Court had recognized in 1965, in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut, um, that laws prohibiting married couples from having access to contraception violated the Constitution. Uh, the Supreme Court held in that case that the decision of married couples to decide for themselves a matter that's so intimate and so directly related to the marriage relationship um, could not be interfered with in this way by the state, that it violated the right to privacy of the married couple. Um, several years later, in a case called Eisenstadt versus Baird, uh, the Supreme Court extended that to unmarried persons and held that the right of the individual to decide um, whether to have uh, whether to bear or beget a child is a right of the individual, and that the state does not have a sufficient justification to interfere with that by prohibiting even unmarried people from uh, having access to contraception. So looking at those decisions, the federal court said there is a constitutional right uh, that protects the autonomy and the freedom and the dignity of individuals on matters this, that, this intimate, and that the right of the woman in this context is sufficiently compelling uh, that the state cannot interfere with it. So when the case comes to the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade, um, it's important to note that at that time, the court had taken a sharp move to the right. right? Richard Nixon had been elected. Um, four justices from the Warren Court had left the court. And Richard Nixon had just appointed um, Chief Justice Berger, Harry Blackman, uh, William Rehnquist, and Lewis Powell. And the court had moved sharply to the right. And on a series of issues in these years, uh, the court had, in fact, done what Nixon had wanted and had become a much more self-restrained, judicially restrained body. It basically criticized the Warren Court for being too activist. And so the major premise of these new conservative justices was the court should, be, should back off and should not be interfering in judgments of the state legislatures and the federal government. That was the major shift that was happening. So it's shocking that Roe v. Wade was a 7-2 decision, and three of the four Nixon appointees joined Roe v. Wade. And had they not done so, Roe would have come out the other way. So the thing that people forget today is that when Roe v. Wade was decided, it was not seen as a radical liberal decision. That was not the way it was perceived in, in the Supreme Court. It was not the way it was perceived in the media, and it was not the way it was perceived by the public. Substantial majority of people at the time approved the decision in Roe v. Wade, thought it was correct. Newspapers across the country, including in conservative states like Texas and Georgia, applauded the decision in Roe v. Wade. Um, two years after Roe v. Wade, when, when Gerald Ford nominated John Paul Stevens to replace William Douglas on the Supreme Court, not a single member of the Senate asked Stevens about Roe v. Wade or about abortion. It simply was not seen as controversial at the time. Um, so within the court, it, it, it's interesting to talk a little bit about you know, what, what drove the justices to make this decision, right? So I think there were a couple of factors. Um, one of them was their own precedents had opened the door to thinking about this as not so radical. That is, the decisions in Griswold and Eisenstadt had recognized that there is this right of the individual to decide um, 
uh, for herself uh, whether to bear or beget a child, that that is a fundamental individual right that is protected by the Constitution and extends to the decision of a woman to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. Um, second, they, um, they learned uh, in, in their um, studying about the, the issue of abortion, the history of abortion. Because one thing almost everybody believed at that time was that abortion had always been illegal. Right? They just assumed it had always been illegal. And one of the things that the justices came to understand is that was completely false. Right? They came to understand that abortion had been legal throughout history until the late 19th century in the United States. And that at the time of the Constitution, abortion was legal. And that this was driven almost entirely by a religious intervention in the law. And so both of those facts clearly affected the understandings of the justices. At first, that in fact, our, our history was not one that prohibited abortion. The world of the framers was one in which abortion was legal. That was relevant to understanding the Constitution. Um, and second, that it was clear this was the product of religious intervention in the secular law. And even though the justices were reluctant to, to impute to the legislature's religious motivations, um, like Rockefeller, they understood the reality of this issue. Um, and the other factor that really made a difference is they, they came to understand um, what the world of illegal abortion was like. And this was just, at this point, was just now becoming part of the public consciousness. Um, and Harry Blackman, who was the author of the opinion, um, uh, the court originally decide, was going to decide the case the year before they decided it. But Blackman, who was, who was assigned to write the majority opinion, um, hadn't really figured out exactly how he wanted to write it. And so they decided to re-argue the case the following year, the year I was at the court. And Blackman, that summer, went back to the Mayo Clinic, where he had been general counsel and on the board when he, before he became a judge. And he studied about abortion. And he learned about the history in intimate detail. And he, more importantly, learned about the reality on the ground of the world of abortion and what was happening to a million women a year in our country. Um, and when he came back and really educated the court um, to those realities, uh, it became very clear that uh, this was something the court had to do. And this was relevant to one of the arguments that has been often made, including by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, is that the court in Roe went too far too fast. Um, that as a consequence of that, um, we've had this pushback that we've been living with ever since Roe, um, and that that would not have happened um, people like Ginsburg have argued, um, if the court had gone much more slowly and had taken 10 or 15 years to gradually make a series of decisions about the issue of abortion, allowed the legislative process to play itself out, um, allowed legislatures to adopt more moderate or more liberal abortion laws, we would not have had the kind of conflict over abortion that we've had. Um, my, my view is that's completely wrong. Um, It's completely wrong, first of all, because it misunderstands how powerful the religious pushback was and why legislatures had stopped acting. And I have very little doubt that that would have continued for a long time to come. Um, But second of all, what the justices understood is that if they had decided to take this gradualist approach, that they would let this play out over 10 or 15 years, that every year a million women would be subjected to the horror that they now understood was the consequence of illegal abortion. And their view was they couldn't do that. Once they decided that there was a constitutional right to abortion, they couldn't take the strategic approach of letting this play out over 10 or 15 years, knowing that every year a million women would be subjected to this horror. And therefore, the argument that the court 
made a mistake by moving quickly when it did in Roe. I think it's completely wrong, and I think the court did the right thing at the time that it did it. What do you think is going to happen to abortion? Well, um, it, in, by 1990, uh, there was a serious fear and well-founded fear that Roe v. Wade would be overruled. Um, by that time, Republican presidents uh, had made a series of appointments to the court um, so that by that time, the only justice who had voted for Roe v. Wade of the seven who was still on the court was Harry Blackman. All the others were gone. And all the others who'd replaced them had been appointed by Republican presidents, by um, either Gerald Ford or Ronald Reagan uh, or George um, H.W. Bush. And uh, there was a very strong expectation that the court with this new makeup uh, would vote to overrule uh, Roe v. Wade. People tend to forget that that was the state of the mind at that, t- at that moment. Um, and at that time, Justice Anthony Kennedy uh, and Justice David Souter and Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, three justices appointed by Republican presidents, um, who had appointed them in part to overrule Roe v. Wade, um, basically got together and decided they should not do that. Um, and they forged a 5-4 majority in the case, um, with Justice Stevens, who had also been appointed by a Republican president, Gerald Ford, and Harry Blackman, who had also been appointed by a Republican president, Richard Nixon. Um, and the five of them basically reaffirmed Roe v. Wade. They modified it in some ways, but fundamentally reaffirmed the decision. Um, and basically explained that they thought that there was not any legitimate justification put forth for overruling this precedent in a world in which courts are supposed to follow precedents. Um, and they argued that basically the woman should have this right. It is fundamental to in- the individual. And so Roe has been preserved in the years since then, despite various changes in the makeup of the court. Um, and at the present time, with the, with the court constituted the way it is, uh, there are five justices on the court who continue to support Roe v. Wade. Um, uh, Ginsburg, Breyer, Kennedy, uh, uh, Kagan, and Sotomayor. Um, And when President Obama had the opportunity to replace Justice Scalia with Merrick Garland, um, it was clear that that would lock Roe into place with a pretty high degree of confidence for the foreseeable future. Um, Because Garland would have been someone who on the side of supporting the precedent of Roe v. Wade. Uh, And that's a major part of the reason why Senator McConnell and the Senate Republicans refused to confirm Garland in what was a totally unprecedented and unconscionable action by the Republicans in the Senate, which worked, of course, because Donald Trump was elected and Neil Gorsuch was appointed, and Gorsuch will most certainly uh, substitute for Justice Scalia on these issues. But it still remains the case that there are five justices who will continue to hear Roe v. Wade. The problem is the three most senior justices on the Supreme Court today are Ruth Ginsburg, Anthony Kennedy, and Stephen Breyer. Um, and if any of those three were to leave the court in the next couple of years for reasons of health or otherwise, and if Donald Trump uh, were to have the opportunity to replace that justice um, and surely would appoint another Scalia-Gorsuch-type justice, uh, then for the first time since the early 90s, uh, there would be a, a court that would be very likely to overrule Roe v. Wade, 
Uh, and my own guess is that they would. Um, I think that the justices currently on the court um, would vote to overrule Roe v. Wade. Um, I think that they believe it is fundamentally an illegitimate decision, a decision with which they personally um, find revolting from a moral perspective. Um, And I would be quite shocked, frankly, if they did not overrule Roe v. Wade. Um, And that would create a disaster uh, in many states in the nation. Now, some states, like probably New York and Illinois, uh, would legalize abortion and basically by legislation, would create a world similar to the world of Roe v. Wade. But a majority of states, if you think of the Electoral College, a majority of states uh, would not legalize uh, abortion. Um, And particularly for poor women um, who could not afford to travel to another state where they might be able to get a legal abortion, that will throw them back into the world again of illegal abortion. And I think that's a tragic uh, possibility. And, you know, again, I just... It's just astonishing to me that the Republicans are basically able to steal a seat on the Supreme Court that may lead us to this state of affairs. We, we may be back to back alley abortions because, of, because they wouldn't uh, uh, even talk to Merrick Garland. And it, it is important for, to understand how illegitimate that was. It's crazy. Um, I mean, the argument that the Republicans made was this was Obama's last year. And we should leave that seat to be filled by the next president, whoever that might be, Um, as if this was a principle. Thirteen presidents in our history have appointed justices to the Supreme Court in their last year of office, including such undistinguished people as George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) Andrew Jackson, (laughs) Abraham Lincoln, um, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan. Um, this is completely the norm. And this, this completely made-up argument, totally dishonest argument, um, simply was designed to enable them to do something that was truly, as a matter of principle and a matter of historical tradition, unconscionable. But they did it, and they pulled it off. And the stakes for the country of that are really quite dramatic. It's it's a it's a chilling story. So you know you were talking about uh, Justice Ginsburg's criticism of Roe as too far too fast, and I wanted to talk about another area that you address in the book, where maybe where some people may be making that same kind of claim, and this is the issue of gay rights, mm-hmm. because we've seen this astonishing. Uh, Turnaround in in what seems like a short period of time to me, from Bowers v. Hardwick in 1986, where where gay sodomy was was illegal and that was condoned by the Supreme Court, to now with gay marriage being condoned by the right. Supreme Court, just this amazing turnaround. Has tell us about that evolution and and whether whether that's been too far too fast and, and has some risks. So, the idea that there would be a constitutional right to same sex marriage in 1973, when Roe v. Wade was decided, was unimaginable. I mean, frankly, nobody, the most liberal justice, would not have entertained that as a credible possibility. That's clearly true. Um, so the, 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 gay, the gay rights movement, which I trace in the book, um, obviously has produced a transformation in public attitudes about homosexuality, and the role of homosexuality in society. Um, the, the view about homosexuality historically in American history um, 
has actually been less severe than we would imagine. Um, although homosexuality was always illegal under the law, um, it was almost never prosecuted. In the entire 19th century, there was only one prosecution for homosexuality that did not involve a child or, uh, or rape. Um, nonetheless, most people regarded homosexuality as largely invisible, non-existent. Um, they were called homosexuals the thought of as freaks of nature. Um, most people never thought they knew anybody who was gay. Um, and this began to change um, uh, in the 1920s when, uh, again, in New York and, and many other cities, uh, a much more openly gay community um, uh, arose and uh, became visible in a way that hadn't existed before um, and was seen as, in some quarters, kind of cool um, and, uh, and sexy and, and appealing and, and open. Uh, and uh, then that went back deeply into the closet um, uh, over the next several decades again. Um, and uh, but I, I think that but the gay rights movement as a movement never really gathered much public force or attention, frankly, until the AIDS crisis. Um, the, the the challenge that gays had that was quite different from women and African Americans is they could hide who they were, and so they could avoid much of the overt discrimination against them by simply not telling anybody who they were. Now, that came obviously at a large cost to them personally and in terms of dignity, but they could avoid having to actually directly address the discrimination, whereas women and African-Americans couldn't. And so the, the, the movement, the open movement for civil rights um, and for women's rights uh, was much more driven by the fact that, that they were being overtly discriminated against in all these ways. Um, gays could stay in the closet. And um, that enabled them in some ways to diffuse various kinds of discrimination that would have been much more aggressive to the extent their identities were known. Um, so it was kind of a conundrum because on the one hand, if you came out, your life was going to be badly affected. You'd lose your job. You'd be thrown out of your, at, at where you lived. Uh, people wouldn't talk to you. You'd be regarded as a, as a, a sinful, uh, horrendous person. Um, and so if you wanted to fight for gay rights, you really had to pay a huge price to be willing to do that. And although there were people who did that, uh, they were relatively few and far between. The, the AIDS ep- epidemic made that, it changed that in a fundamental way. I mean, suddenly hundreds of thousands of gay men had to reveal their identities because of AIDS. They had no choice. And people began to realize that their children and their cousins and their neighbors and their employers or their employees people who they knew and respected and liked, were gay. And that had a powerful impact on people's understanding of homosexuality. So the gay movement, the idea that um, gays are not freaks of nature, that they're not horrible, sinful criminals, um, really was transformative in a relatively short period of time. Um, And so that's what drove, I think, the social shift in society about, about gay rights. Um, the legal change, the constitutional change, was, was obviously parallel to that. Um, in, in 1986, <coughs> as Amy suggested, in, 19, in, in a case called Bowers versus Hardwick, um, the Supreme Court addressed the question of whether a homosexual couple could be prosecuted for engaging in, in sodomy, in same-sex sex. And in a five-to-four decision, the Supreme Court said that laws prohibiting sodomy were not unconstitutional. 
And what's amazing about Bowers v. Hardwick, frankly, is that four justices in 1986 argued that it was unconstitutional to, to punish gays for engaging in, in sodomistic behavior. Um, at that moment in time, that was actually pretty stunning when you think about it. Um, and the other aspect of that, which is a little inside baseball, which is fascinating, is one of the justices who voted in the majority in Bowers v. Hardwick was Justice Lewis Powell, who'd been appointed by Richard Nixon. And Powell was a, a by today's standard, a moderate liberal, by those standards still conservative. Um, and, and, and Powell was a, a southern gentleman from Virginia. He had never... N- had any exposure to homosexuality, and he had a conversation with his law clerk, who was the one who was working with him on the case of Bowers v. Hardwick, and he said to them, you know, I don't get this homosexual stuff, uh, Powell said. He said, you know, I don't understand why, you know, men uh, who are homosexual can't just have sex with women. You know, what's the big deal? And the law clerk said, well, you know, they can't get erections with women. And it's sort of like if a gay, if a straight man tries to get an erection with having sex with a man. This wouldn't be sexually arousing to them. And Powell said, I I don't understand this at all. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, What he didn't know was the clerk he was talking to was gay. Um, And in later years, Powell said that the single vote he cast that he most regretted was his vote in Bowers v. Hardwick. Um, And that if he could, could have taken that vote back, uh, he would have he would have voted differently, but anyway, um, in 2003, 17 years later, uh, the Supreme Court overrules Bowers v. Hardwick um, in Lawrence versus Texas, and the court holds that that uh, that individuals engaged in homosexual sex uh, cannot constitutionally be criminally punished for doing so. That that intrudes upon the right to privacy of individuals to make sexual choices of their own. Um, and that such laws are discriminatory and are unconstitutional. Um, and then a decade later, um, in Obergefell, uh, the Supreme Court holds that there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. So did the court go too far too fast? Well, it certainly went faster than state legislatures were going. Um, uh, by the time of Lawrence v. Texas, a, a large number of states had eliminated the criminal laws against sodomy. Um, uh, but a, a relatively small number of states at the time of Obergefell had, as a matter of legislation, legalized same-sex marriage. Many lower courts, following the precedence of the Supreme Court, had held state laws prohibiting same-sex marriage unconstitutional. But that was because the courts were doing it, not because the legislatures were doing it. Um, but I don't think the court went too far, uh, too fast there. I think that they were um, reflecting, again, um, a shift in public understandings and attitudes, uh, much as they did in Brown v. Board of Education, uh, much as they did in Loving versus Virginia, where they held laws prohibiting uh, interracial marriage unconstitutional. Um, and, and, and basically, they, they, they came to understand that the meaning of equality um, shifted uh, in the same way the court did about women. It was once the the sense that the laws could discriminate against women and they were perfectly constitutional um, because women are different from men and you can treat women differently from men. And in the early 1970s, the court began to reverse itself on that. And so our understanding of, of, of fundamental constitutional concepts can evolve over time. And that's, that's part of what was happening in this range of cases I just mentioned. So um, we have some really great questions from the audience. I will... Uh, go through some of them. I don't even know if we'll get to all of them. Um, this follows up nicely on the gay rights question, I think. Can you discuss Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission? 
What do you imagine the consequences of a ruling for each side would be? So I am a very strong proponent of gay rights. Um, I have a gay daughter. I I wrote briefs in the Supreme Court um, in Lawrence v. Texas, in Windsor, which was the case that held unconstitutional the Federal Defensive Marriage Act, and in Obergefell. Um, uh, But nonetheless, I actually find the Masterpiece case a difficult one. Um, And I find it difficult for the following reason. Um, The Supreme Court first confronted this question of whether a law that is neutral about religion can constitutionally be applied to compel an individual to act in a way that is inconsistent with his sincerely held religious belief in the absence of the state having a compelling justification for doing so. In 1961, in a case called Sherbert versus Werner. And this was a case involving a Seventh day Adventist who was seeking unemployment benefits in the state. And the state law provided that you could be eligible for unemployment benefits only if you were willing to take a job that would require you to work on days between Monday through Saturday. And Seventh day Adventists could not work on Saturdays, that was their Sabbath. And so she sued and claimed that the denial of unemployment benefits to her because of this law violated her rights under the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. And the Warren Court, a very liberal court, a court that held, for example, that school prayer was unconstitutional, um, nonetheless held that she did have, in fact, a First Amendment right uh, to, to receive unemployment compensation benefits, and that the state could not deny her those benefits um, because of her unwillingness to work on Saturdays. And Justice Brennan, very liberal justice, the same justice whom I clerked, wrote the opinion in, in the case. And I once had a conversation with Brennan about why he thought this was the right decision. And um, he explained, and it was really quite compelling, that what the justices understood is that mainstream religions would always exempt themselves from any law. First of all, they wouldn't adopt laws that required people to act in a way that was inconsistent with their religious belief. That's number one. But number two, if they did enact such a law, they would always exempt people for religious beliefs from having to comply with those laws. So prohibition, for example, exempted the sacramental use of wine. Um, And so what, what the court understood in Sherbert v. Werner is the only time this problem will arise is if people who are members of minority religions are essentially being implicitly discriminated against because mainstream religions would never pass laws that did that to them. And that that was the fundamental evil that was happening in these circumstances. And I I found that to be completely persuasive and compelling. Um, And the Supreme Court overruled Sherbert v. Werner 30 years later in an opinion by Justice Antonin Scalia, um, in a case involving the Native American church, where members of the Native American church used peyote as a sacramental part of their their services, and a member of the church was denied benefits because of his use of peyote, um, a case clearly governed by by Sherbert B. Werner, and the Supreme Court overruled it and said, no, you know, that that was a bad decision, we're going to overrule it. And 
I think that decision was wrong. I think Sherbert was right. Um, and so my view is that if you have an individual in the state of Colorado where clearly the, the, the percentage of people who feel this strongly about this issue for sincerely held religious beliefs, beliefs is pretty small, in fact, uh, that the state probably should carve out an exemption in that situation, the same way they would if the law had a similar effect upon mainstream religions. And um, so the issue really is, um, is there a compelling justification for requiring the baker to act in a way that's inconsistent with his religious beliefs? And the argument that's made is, is prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race or sexual orientation or gender is compelling. And you should compel people to do that. The complicated issue, though, is that the customer here could go to another baker down the street. So is there really a compelling interest in forcing this baker to make the cake? So I actually think it's a very hard question. And if I were a justice on the court, I'd still be sitting here saying, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. <laughs> I, think, I think we disagree about that case. But I'm going to, I mean, not the reasoning, but the, what, how the results should be. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on because we've got so many great sure. questions. Um, what do you think is the most important thing to do to preserve reproductive rights? Keep, keep the justices yeah, alive. The single most important thing is to, keep, <laughs> is to keep those justices alive and have a Democrat win the White House. Um, well, there you go. Yeah, yes. in, in 2020. I mean, those are the two things that are essential. Um, you know, you could even imagine, by the way, a worse scenario than the one I presented earlier. Um, it's not impossible, not likely, but it's not impossible to imagine that the justices on the Supreme Court um, particularly if Trump gets one or two more nominations and if Trump is reelected and gets another nomination, um, that they would hold not only overrule Roe v. Wade, but they would hold that a fetus is a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment and that therefore states can no more allow abortion than they could legally allow a parent to kill a two-year-old. And therefore abortion for a state to allow abortion would be unconstitutional across the nation. Um, I don't predict that the, the court would do that, but it's not completely off the charts. Um, so I, I think, you know, as a practical matter, the other, the other thing that has to happen that I think has, has not been happening in the discourse about, about reproductive rights um, is that the story of what the world is like for women in a world where abortion is unlawful has been forgotten. And partly it's been forgotten. It's because it's now been 45 years since abortion has been legal. And the women who actually went through that are now, you know, 65 years old and over. Um, So younger women don't really know any of this stuff about what that world was like. And I think it's really important to bring that out and to talk about it and to make clear that if you don't fight for these rights, this is is what's going to happen to women in our society. And we, this is intolerable. And this is immoral. And I think it's not just about a right to have an abortion, right? That, in the abstract, sounds good and it's important. But understanding what the world is like if you can't have abortions, if women can't afford abortions, is horrible. And that's got to be made really visible to people. And I think that's, that's a real challenge in terms of public discourse today. Uh. <laughs> Another question. In the coming decades, 
Do you foresee the male-to-female ratio in the House and Senate becoming more balanced? How will this change, if any, impact how sex is legislated? So I do think that you know we have seen a, a shift over time in the percentage of women in both state legislatures and federal government and on the federal judiciary and so on. And I don't have any reason to believe that won't over time continue. Um, if you look, for example, at the percentage of women in law schools um, who form the pool of people who 20 years down the road may become judges and, and frequently become legislators and so on, that percentage has gone up now to almost 50 percent, uh, whereas it used to be much, much lower. So I, I would imagine that we will continue to see uh, an increase in the number of, of in the percentage of women in these positions. And um, I think that will affect these issues. I think women uh, tend to be obviously uh, more sympathetic to issues of, of reproductive rights than men in general. And uh, that's a positive thing in my view in terms of how legislation will, will evolve. Um, but it'll be a long time before women, I think, become the controlling forces um, in, in, elected represent, in, in elected bodies in this country. What surprised you the most while researching this book? Are there any issues about which you are now more sympathetic? To the other side, I assume that means. Um, well, the, 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 the issue I talked about a moment ago is the one where I don't know if I'm more sympathetic, but I, I, it, it become, it's clear to me that that, to me, is a hard issue. Um, the, the, the right... Um, that's really the only one I think I would say that I feel you know, sympathetic to. I, I do believe it's important in our society to maintain a separation of church and state. I think that, that the, um, the desire of religious forces in society to, to take over the secular law is natural. It's, it goes back throughout history. Um, I understand why they want to do that. Um, I understand why people who believe sincerely, deeply believe that abortion is murder of an unborn child. I, I understand why they are so fervent in their desire to change the law on this. I, I get it. Um, but I think they have to understand that that's not appropriate if their reason for doing it is fundamentally rooted in religious belief. And sometimes it's hard for people to separate those two things. You know, they may say, this is a moral belief. Sure, it happens to coincide with my religion, but it's independent of that. I believe this to be true no matter what, wholly apart from my religion. Um, but I do think people need to learn to be more introspective about the extent to which their religion is dictating the, what, their, what their political positions are and to recognize that they should be careful and respectful about, about that. But I can't say that on any of these issues I've moved in, in a less, what I would regard as civil, less civil libertarian direction. Uh, another good question. In her book, White Women, Black Men, Martha Hode said that before the 1840s, interracial sex, including marriage, was accepted in the South. The miscegenation laws were a reaction to abolitionism. Did the Supreme Court address this before the Loving decision? Um, well, the Supreme Court did not address it before the Loving decision. Um, the, um, the laws uh, against miscegenation uh, came about after the Civil War, and, and they became quite aggressive uh, as part of a, an effort to um, prevent uh, race mixing in, in children. But it's ironic because in, in the days before the Civil War, right, white slave owners had sex with 
um, their black slaves and produced mixed-race children. Um, and indeed, in many communities, mixed-race marriages were legal. Um, but uh, I think it was, it was during the sort of Jim Crow era that the laws against miscegenation became sort of fiercely uh, enacted and enforced. Um, and, and a lot of this had to do with uh, maintaining the, the separation. Uh, and, and that is what I'm saying is Jim Crow was in part about keeping people separately for sex. Um, you didn't want kids in the same schoolroom. You didn't want people eating in the same restaurant, riding on the same bus, in part because you wanted not to have interracial sex. And so one of the driving forces behind Separate But Equal was the concern that developed about interracial sex um, and ultimately about interracial marriage. Um, and the Supreme Court took 13 years after Brown v. Board of Education uh, to address the issue of miscegenation. Um, and it's interesting to note that at the time it did that, um, 76% of the American people disapproved of the decision. Um, they thought that, that uh, states should be allowed to prohibit interracial sex as recently as 1967. Um, it's also interesting to compare that to Roe. Uh, only 40% of Americans disagreed with Roe v. Wade um, compared to the, the, uh, the, 60, the 72% who opposed um, uh, interracial marriage. But I don't actually talk much about that in the book. Um, I, I do talk about loving briefly, but, but I, I regard that as much more a racial issue than a sexual issue, although obviously there's, there's an overlap. And, and one of the criticisms people have made of me is not having spent more time on that issue. But my, my partner is, um, uh, she's a professor of American history at the University of Chicago, and that's exactly what she writes a book, and she's written books about this. So I can just <laughs> tell people, read her books. <laughs> Between the two of them, they've got it covered. Yeah, right. um, how much did abortions cost throughout the 20th century through the present? Uh, interesting question. Um, when abortions were legal, they were not terribly expensive. Um, and women could get them from, um, uh, uh, you know, from people who were trained to do them, not necessarily doctors, midwives, as I said before. They were not very expensive. They were high-class, high-end um, abortionists like Madame Restel in New York, uh, who made a fortune doing abortions for relatively wealthy women. Um, but they were, not, they were not expensive. I mean, abortions were readily available. Um, when they became illegal, that changed, and um, you, wealthy women could get abortions from doctors um, who in those days, in the, in the 1950s, were charging um, about $1,000 for an abortion, which is equivalent today of about $10,000. Um, and so only wealthy women could afford them. Um, but, but for women who got these back alley abortions, um, they were... I, I, I'm vaguely remembering now, they were costing like 50 bucks or 100 bucks. They weren't that difficult. And many of the people who did them did them because they weren't doing it for money. They were doing it because they thought women should be able to do this. So one example I talk about in the book, which is, I think, pretty cool, is is there was a student at the University of Chicago, a college student in the 1960s, uh, Heather Booth, um, who's still around and still an activist, um, who created an organization uh, at the University of Chicago called Jane, and this was an organization that trained students at the university, um, had doctors train students at the university uh, to learn how to perform abortions. Um, and they performed some 13,000 illegal abortions um, for women in 
in first at the university, then in the community of Hyde Park, and then more broadly in the city of Chicago um, during those years. And they did it for free. I mean, they were not, they were not doing it for money. That's amazing. Um, how have nude statues been viewed throughout American history? <laughs> so n- nudity in statues were commonplace in Greece and Rome. Um, and, you know, the Greeks and the Romans had a very... Uh, open view about sexual erotica and one of the things I had fun putting in the book are some uh, images uh, from those days uh, where you see, for example, a woman uh, jumping into a a big uh, vat uh, carrying a whole bunch of dildos. Um, And this was was part of the Greek culture. It was very common. Uh, And statues, both of men and women, uh, who were nude, were just commonplace. Uh, And uh, and that, that remained true you know, through the Middle Ages, obviously, you know, Michelangelo and so on. Um, it, during the Comstock era, um, nude statues became much more problematic. And uh, I, I, there was a real movement to take them down and to, and to eliminate them. Um, I, I, I don't know whether some of them survived during that late 19th century in public places. Uh, they, they might have. <coughs> but they would have been deemed obscene and illegal, and there would have been a strong movement against them. Um, and that, that probably didn't begin to change until the 20th century, when the idea of obscenity began to shift. But it remained the case that, you know, having, even though adults, it was okay for adults to see nudity, not okay for children to see nudity. And so, you know, nude statues in public places would still have been regarded as um, highly problematic. So I don't know when they became you know, more acceptable, but really, I would guess not, not fully acceptable until relatively recently in terms of our history. I ha- but I haven't actually thought about that. I, I think question. I remember John Ashcroft trying to have a, a statue covered up in, in, uh-huh. in right. Congress. You're right, that's right. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it's interesting. Is there a link between Comstock's laws and women's suffrage? If not, why didn't the framers acknowledge women as full citizens? Well, um, in terms of women's suffrage, the, the only real connection is a kind of interesting one, is that in the early years of the 20th century, um, when Margaret Sanger uh, in New York was the, the nation's leading uh, proponent of legalizing contraception um, and got herself prosecuted by Comstock and then after Comstock died by others uh, and ultimately formed the organization that became Planned Parenthood, um, uh, she tried to get the, the leaders of the women's suffrage movement to support contraception, and they wouldn't do it because their view was that that would create the impression that the women's movement is about sex, and it's about women being able to have sex, and that would undermine the political force of we need the right to vote, right, and that it would somehow demean the movement and cheapen it. And so one of the great frustrations that Sanger had was that she could not get the leaders of the suffrage movement to support contraception, uh, legalization of contraception. Um, o- over time, of course, women's rights movement generally came together with, with, contra- with, with the issues of contraception and abortion. But at the time that the women's suffrage movement was going on, uh, they actually steered clear of these issues. 
because they, they thought it would, in some sense, undermine the, the, the purity of the argument about political power and, and, and political and legal equality. Um, in terms of the connection, uh, why the framers didn't believe in, 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 in women's suffrage, I think it didn't even occur to them as a serious issue, frankly. Um, that's not who women were. You know, you, you, if you weren't a property owner, you couldn't vote either. Um, so they, you know, their idea was, was, was the right to participate in political um, uh, activity was limited not only to men, but only to men who were le- had landed property. Uh, and, but the idea of women voting uh, was not, I think, a major issue in American politics till well into the 19th century. Um, do you think the court is more politicized today than any other time in U.S. history? Um, unfortunately, yes. Um, that isn't to say it hasn't been politicized in the past. Um, you know, there were periods uh, during the Lochner era, during the late 19th, early 20th century, when conservative justices who made up the majority of the court were holding all of the progressive legislation unconstitutional. They were judicial activists who found a liberty of contract in the Constitution uh, and was, were invalidating all of the, the um, minimum wage laws and maximum hours laws and laws that were designed to protect women in the workplace and uh, designed to protect children in the workplace, saying those laws unduly interfered with the freedom of, of contract. Um, and that was seen as very political, and, uh, and, and, and the court was seen in that way as being highly political. Obviously, even in the years before uh, the Civil War with the Dred Scott decision, um, the court was seen in that context as very political. And in the early 19th century, um, when John Marshall handed down a series of decisions that uh, recognized the court uh, as a powerful entity that, that took, took upon the, uh, the authority of the court to, to have a, a stronger voice, that was, that was very political. Um, the Warren Court, of course, was perceived as political. So it's not unusual for the court to be seen as engaging and deciding issues that are, that are seen as, as divisive and political in our, in our society, um, often for good reason and legitimate reasons doing that. Um, at the present time, I think the court is seen as more political than maybe ever before because the process of appointment has become much more politicized. Um, the justices on the Supreme Court today um, and for the last... 15 years or so, um, have been highly predictable in how they will vote on the most um, controversial and ideological cases based on what president appointed them. And that has not generally been true in the past. Um, In the past, you had justices like Byron White, who were appointed by Anthony Kennedy, who was fairly conservative, and justices like Earl Warren and William Brennan appointed by Dwight Eisenhower, who were very liberal. Um, But in recent years, uh, presidents have been increasingly determined to appoint justices who would have a philosophy that comported with outcomes that they wanted to see the court reach. Um, And that's, again, evident in the Garland situation as to how the Senate acted in that context. Um, So I do think the court is both, in fact, more political in the sense of who gets selected to the court, um, and also, partly because of that, um, their votes tend to be more political in the sense that they are predictable. Um, so I, I did a very casual study um, a couple of years ago, calling it a study is, is an exaggeration, uh, in which I invited, I was curious about this. So I asked a bunch of my colleagues um, to tell me what they thought were the 20 most controversial and important decisions the Supreme Court had reached in the preceding decade. And so they sent me, a, each of them sent me a list. And then I took the ones, the 20 cases that got the most votes. 
and um, there were obvious cases. There were abortion, and there were campaign finance, and there were guns, and and some important search and seizure cases, and Guantanamo cases, and so on. And um, I then uh, did a couple of things. Uh, first, I looked at the votes of the justices in those 20 cases. And the justices who were seen as conservatives at that in those years, people like Scalia and Rehnquist and Thomas and so on, uh, and Alito and Roberts, uh, voted 99% of the time together. And those who were seen as liberals, um, uh, Kagan and Sotomayor and Breyer and Ginsburg and, and so on, uh, I included Stevens and, and, and Souter in that, even though they were appointed by Republicans, because they had, given how the court had shifted, they had sort of become, quote, liberals. They voted together 97% of the time in those cases. And Kennedy and O'Connor uh, voted with conservatives 67% of the time and with liberals 33% of the time, although not necessarily in the same cases. Um, and so they were the ones who decided basically pretty much everything. Um, now, again, these are the 20 most controversial cases over a decade. So this is not the average case in the Supreme Court. But on the most, on the most uh, ideological cases, this was the case. And the other thing I did, which was really interesting, is I went to several of my friends who were non-lawyers. I didn't tell them why I was doing this. I just gave them the laws that were at issue in each of these 20 cases. And I asked them, how do you think liberal and conservative legislators would vote in favor or opposed to each of these laws? And it turned out they agreed almost entirely on how they predicted the legislators would vote. And it turned out it, it, worked, it, it correlated perfectly with the way the liberal and the conservative justices voted on those cases. So, you know, that does tell you that at least in this tiny fraction of the cases, you know, two a year on average, but the ones that you get the most headlines about, right, gay rights and abortion and, and things like that, uh, those are the ones in which the justices really are highly politicized in their votes. Are we out of time? One more question. Um, what areas of human sexuality do you think the court will address in the future? Well, that, that's a great question. Of course, it depends what court we're talking about. <laughs> so one fundamental issue, which I hope the court, two fundamental issues, which I hope the court reaches very quickly, are whether it is constitutional for states to discriminate against gays and lesbians. The Supreme Court has not decided that question. Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case, was unfortunately, in my view, decided by Justice Kennedy on grounds that marriage is a fundamental right, not on the ground that laws that discriminate against on the basis of sexual orientation are unconstitutional. So that remains a, 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 technically an open question, um, and, and that's fundamentally important. Um, the second related issue has to do with the status of transgender persons and how they are treated under the law. Um, but, but if you assume, let's hypothetically assume that the court has no change in it and that in 2020 a Democrat is elected president and that Democrat uh, gets to replace not only the more liberal justices but over time also some of the more conservative justices. So you now have a court that's more liberal than the one we have today. Um, then I think th those two issues, first of all, are important. But then the other really off-the-charts kind of issues that are interesting uh, are questions like polygamy, right? I mean, the Supreme Court held that the right to marry is fundamental and the state should not be able to intrude in the freedom of individuals to decide whom they marry without a compelling justification. And so the question then is, well, does that reach polygamy? 
right? Is polygamy an issue that uh, it's covered by the principle that's been recognized in Obergefell? Indeed, the dissenters in Obergefell said, well, the next thing you're going to do is polygamy, right? Um, and it's, hard, it's about as hard to imagine that today as it was 25 years ago to imagine same-sex marriage as a constitutional right. But it's not implausible given the line of precedent. So that would be an example of a law that yeah. is imaginable. Many more great questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to them all. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.